The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk... The gloves are off as two of the biggest beasts on Fleet Street lay into the Leveson inquiry. Britain's commercially viable free press is the only real free media in this country. Overregulate that and you put democracy itself in peril. There was never a party, a breakfast, a lunch, a cuppa that Cameron and co would not turn up in force if the great man or his handmaiden, Rebecca Brooks, was there. There was always a queue to kiss their rings. We bring you full analysis of the speeches by Paul Dacre and Kelvin McKenzie. Plus, we look at the media's hounding of Liam Fox. And welcome to Drive. Thank you for those texts saying uh, welcome to the, well, watch one text that calls the wet and windy north. Hope you all enjoy the experience. I'm sure we will. Probably more importantly, we hope you enjoy the experience. Uh, let's get on with our programme. Five Live Drive relocates to the northwest. It's all coming up on Media Talk from The Guardian. Here with me in the pod this week, I have the writer and broadcaster Ollie Mann, one half of the award-winning Answer Me This podcast. And if I read this rightly, it's been known to come out wrong before. Um, Ollie, you are the new best friend of Andrew Marr. <laughs> I think that story's relating to the fact that I, um, I was on the telly last weekend and Andrew Marr was on immediately after me um, and told me on air that everything I'd just said was wrong and he vehemently disagreed. But then when we went into the corridor, he was a very nice man, so I tweeted about it. That's right, and you're singing for dinner next week? or uh, Yes, every Friday, if possible. Excellent, and he'll tell you what you ordered was wrong, straight after you ordered, <laughs> presumably. And, and also here in, in the pod is Guardian reporter Lisa O'Carroll, who is former editor of MediaGuardian.co.uk, who is now back with us on the Media Beat. Now, Lisa, this isn't your f- Media Talk debut. Uh, tell us about the first time you're on. Oh, you were among John, esteemed company. John, you're aging me, carbon dating me. It was way, way, way back when The Guardian was down on Farringdon Road. And in fact, in the bad old days, the internet was on Ray Street, not even integrated with the paper. Um, we were pioneering at the time and did some podcasts. And one of the first ones that had um, Peter Preston, the esteemed P- Peter Preston, and Melanie, whose name, surname I can't remember, from Big Brother. Melanie from Big Brother, she must be Series 1, Series 2. She didn't want a tabloid career, she wanted a upmarket quality career. Yes. Well, we'll see if we can get it back on, on our door. Week. Isn't it funny we how Big Brother's very changed? successful. No one would do that now, going to Big Brother now, would they, to have an upmarket career? Everyone yeah. assumes they're just going to, you know, get them out for OK Magazine and get as much money as possible. Well, we've tackled the big, tackled the big issue, Big Brother. <laughs> Move on to the second issue of the week, which is the, the Leveson Inquiry. And uh, Lisa, we'll start with you, because you had a ringside seat at the opening exchanges this week, and that meant you got to see those two famous shrinking violets, uh, Paul Dacre and Kelvin McKenzie, who have plenty to say about uh, press regulation, uh, phone hacking, and the nature of the inquiry itself. Now, you can see edited highlights of McKenzie's polemic on the Media Guardian website, and very entertaining it is too. But Lisa, how was it for you? It sounded like great theatre. Five-star review? Um, Well, it was the second of two... It was the third seminar, uh, split into two days, so... Of the two days, Paul Dacre was probably, he, he was the most serious, most powerful individual um, on show. And what was really interesting was he, you rarely, rarely see Paul Dacre in public. He doesn't do press awards. He doesn't do media events. Um, he, he just does not like sticking his head above the parapet. Um, so everybody was, you know, queuing, um, so to speak, to see him. And Kelvin is just a funny turn, you know, um, 
comedy um, in motion. And I think the thing the thing with Paul Dacre was he got up, he's got a very powerful, booming voice, um, and it was a it was an, a fantastic um, speech, very striking. Um, he lost no time uh, getting um, straight into. Um, the enemies of the press, the myths of the press. Myth one was, you know, the, the press press behaviour was worse than it was 20 years ago. He said it wasn't. Um, he attacked um, the politicians, he attacked the Tory party. And then after all the, you know, as, as George Bock of the Times said to me at the, at the, at the break, as all the smoke and bangs um, faded, there were two very, very serious concessions. And one was, um, this guy, as you, you may or may not know, was a staunch defender of the Press Complaints Commission, which is under attack. So anyway, the two concessions were um, fines um, for errant newspapers or proprietors. And the second was that there could be co-regulation and that would take the form of an ombudsman who would be completely independent of a press complaints commission mark two, would um, consist of a retired judge and possibly two retired um, editors. And they would be have the power essentially to subpoena journalists or editors, um, investigate scandals and fine. Big concessions, as you say, and also we're going to see an innovation in uh, next week's Daily Mail. Is that right? A page two right, corrections yeah. and clarifications. Page two corrections and clarifications. But as somebody said today, um, the big thing about the corrections and clarifications column in the Guardian and the readers' editors, the readers' editors actually not contracted to the Guardian, contracted to Scott Trust, and um, Chris Elliott is employed by Liz Forgan of the Scott Trust, not by Alan Rusbridger. So I think that's that will be the interesting thing. Will they also create a new structure? Um, in it's not clear to allow readers editor to act independently and actually challenge the editor, the editor in chief, Paul Dacre himself. They're not major enough concessions, are they? I, I know they're. I know that he's not necessarily in the spotlight in the same way that the people from News International are. But as far as the public are concerned, you know, a, a, a clarifications column on page two and an ombudsman. I mean, that's incredibly dry sounding. It doesn't sound like the industry as a whole has really taken stock and wants to change the way they are. And I know you put that across very entertainingly. Um, well, Paul Dacre was far from... He wasn't entertaining. You, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Kelvin was entertaining. Well, they were both... I, what's weird, I, I know that the inquiry proper hasn't started yet, but yeah. what I found odd about watching those clips on the web, and I don't know what it was like when you were actually there in the hall, is it looked like they were presenting a Grammy or something. They were on stage bathed in blue light with this kind of lectern with uh, Leveson inquiry written on it. And... I know that they're not being investigated and that this is preliminary, but it still felt very sort of showbizy. At Kelvin, yes, as I'm saying, Kelvin was a comic turn. You know, he, he tells great value five-star stories about Rupert Murdoch, and that's what Kelvin's value really is, an insight into how Murdoch himself thinks. And he had a few classy stories about that. Kelvin represents nobody apart from himself. He isn't an editor of a newspaper. He hasn't been the editor of The Sun for... 13, 14, 15 years. And would he have said the same things if he was still a columnist? He wouldn't have spoken. If he, he wouldn't have spoken if he was the editor of the Sun. He would have refused Levison's invite. In fact, he refused to appear, if I um, remember correctly, um, in front of the Culture Select Committee. Well, as you mentioned, Lisa, these are, these are seminars. This is kind of the forerunner to the inquiry itself. So is, is this to get everyone up to speed or to get Levison up to speed? Or what's the point of these initial speeches? The point is to get Levison, who is a judge um, for the last 40 years and doesn't really know, uh, he says this himself, much about how newspapers operate, but in particular his panel of experts, um, none of them come from a uh, real newspaper background. Um, two of them were political editors, one on The Telegraph and Eleanor Goodman on Channel 4, but they operate out of the Westminster village and wouldn't really um, have, ex- they don't, don't have experience of day-to-day Fleet Street, so to speak. 
So it's all about getting them up to speed as well as Levison himself. And that was a point made by Dacre, wasn't it? He said that they, he said most of the panel of experts advising Levison haven't got a, haven't, don't have the faintest clue who, how mass selling papers operate. Do you think uh, the whole inquiry could have saved a lot of time, Ollie, by maybe appointing a judge who did know how newspapers work and a panel of experts who, to appease Dacre, knew exactly how the, the newspaper industry operates? I think it couldn't have harmed them, could it, to have a few more experts on the panel? So I concede that point. But I think the whole reason for this to be happening is that we are trying to explain to the public why it happened and from that point of view you know the public don't work for tabloid newspapers either i think they want people representing them at a high level like a judge who also doesn't work for a tabloid newspaper and can expose corruption for what it is and malpractice for what it is and actually i think sometimes when you're explaining things to someone who doesn't understand these things that's when it's easier for people to pick you up and take you to account than someone who just institutionalized says oh yes this is what happens Lisa, you said that you said there were very different approaches adopted by Dacre and Mackenzie, but both of them had made a similar point in that they were both scathing of the whole inquiry. Uh, and Mackenzie said, um, said that the whole thing was set up by, by David Cameron in an attempt to escape his own personal lack of judgment over appointing yeah, Andy well, Coulson. Well, I mean, the, that, the interesting thing yesterday was you came away thinking every goddamn newspaper is now anti-Cameron, so Cameron has made... Uh, you know, quite a big mistake if he thought that appointing Levison or creating an inquiry was going to um, make this disappear, this issue disappear. He, he you know, the Sun or, um, as somebody rightly pointed out there, that even the Sun are, um, have taken against him on the Fox story. But just to pick you up on the, the, the whole thing of the, the explaining to the public, I think some of the things that came across yesterday that were interesting, interesting and everybody agreed was that the PCC or any, whatever regulatory body comes out of this has to have visibility. You have to be able to say to p- people, this is where you go. Yeah. If you're an ordinary person and you've been wronged, nobody knows what to do. They don't know libel laws. They don't know whether you can get free legal aid. They don't know what the telephone number is. It's not Everyone knows Max Clifford, but nobody knows the PCC. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that they've got to get right. And the other thing is that both um, Dacre and Mackenzie and several others pointed out it is the police who failed to stop phone hacking. They were told all about phone hacking. They failed to investigate. They failed to prosecute. Had they done that, we mightn't be where we were. Sort of. But, I mean, it's just you do kind of think, you know that there's a culture in tabloids of, yeah, grubby sort of reporting, basically, and going after big celebrity stories because that's what sells. And in a way, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'll say that again. And in a way, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just a bit disingenuous in a way. I I found watching Dacre sort of Voldemort-like standing there delivering his pronouncements saying uh, people up and down the country are working for... um, regional papers he said didn't he because they passionately believe in their papers give voice to the voiceless and expose the misdeeds of the rich the powerful and the pompous well all of my mates that work in newspapers and i don't think i know a particularly amoral bunch that's not the reason they got into it that might be a happy byproduct but that's not the reason they became journalists um some of them do it because it's fun and some of the readers do it because it's fun and that's why people like the news of the world and there's sort of no admission of the fact that the biggest selling paper in the country was there because people like reading smut so the industry has to take some responsibility for that as well Lisa, well, if you're a celebrity, I know you're not a celebrity, but if you are a celebrity who's been I'm hauled over the coals... I'm on the, the podcast. Well, thank you very much. You, uh, you've got a new person to complain to. There's a new chairman of the PCC. Yes, thank you for that, John. That's fresh off the printing press. It is breaking news, depending um, on when you're listening Lord to this. Lord Hunt, um, uh, a Tory. Um, I believe he's been appointed after um, lots of consultation among the editors by a, a part of the press regulatory um, system called Pressboff, um, and he will be, as Roy Greenslade uh, he says, he'll be the wartime PCC chair because the PCC is, is not going to survive this. I think everybody's agreed. But he's on 170 grand for three days a week. That's nice. 
Who do I complain to about that? Press <laughs> buff, I guess. Anyway, well, on now to our news and brief section as we delve into some of the other stories making the media headlines this week. First up, the Wall Street Journal and an innovative new way to boost your circulation figures. Now, um, stick with me. The Rupert Murdoch-owned paper channeled money through European companies to secretly buy thousands of copies of its own paper at a knockdown rate. It even persuaded one company to cooperate in the scheme by agreeing to publish articles that promoted its activities. As Alan Partridge might say, there's bulk copies, a legitimate technique which some papers use to boost sales, and then there's bulk copies. Andrew Langhoff, European Managing Director of parent company Dow Jones, was resigned. Uh, Lisa, this kind of scandal is, is the last thing the Murdoch Empire needs right now. It is, yeah, but I think the one thing in his favour is it is terribly complicated. It just won't have the resonance that the phone hacking scandals have had. The interest will be limited to people in the newspaper business, I think. And you wonder if other newspapers or other media companies do this sort of thing. I mean, bulks, as I mentioned there, uh, bulks are, are nothing unusual in the sense that you give away copies, you sell copies for less than cover price. But to actually uh, um, have another company to buy them using money that you've given them is, is something entirely different. Yeah, it, looks, it doesn't look good, does it? Ollie, have you ever paid someone to download your podcast? Have I ever paid someone? Now, that would be really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Of it's a free the, podcast, uh, isn't yeah. it? So it might not work, that model. It's a free podcast. We're, we're hoping that some people might want to pay us to get the old ones, but uh, we haven't quite stretched to paying people to do it yet, no. Well, um, <laughs> elsewhere in News Corp, it looks like MPs will get another crack at Les Hinton, Ripper Murdoch's former right-hand man and latterly of the Wall Street Journal, of course. Um, he's back in front of MPs for the, for the third time, Lisa. Yeah, on the 24th of October, another must-watch um, session with Tom Watson and uh, his crew. Um, yeah, he'll be asked the same questions as uh, James and Rupert and Tom Crone and the others who appeared at the end of September, was it, Time Flies. Um, there'll be questions about this for Neville email. What he did, no, what he didn't know. You know, he was the main man. He was Murdoch's right-hand man for decades. Uh, and Glenn Mulcair says he wants people to stop suing him. His argument is that he's, not, uh, he's suffered enough. And Glenn Mulcair, of course, was the, uh, the private investigator who was responsible and, yeah. and jailed, of course, for phone hacking. Well, it seems like all those years ago. Um, Lisa, do, do you think he's got a case or will he be laughed out of court? Uh, is he expecting sympathy? Well, his lawyers have written this letter to all the claimants, the individuals who are suing News International privately, um, ranging from you know the likes of Hugh Grant and Jemima McCann to Sean Russell, um, Sarah Payne, uh, Sadie Frost, Guy Pelly, blah, blah. Um, and his argument is he's done time. He was jailed for six months in uh, 2007. He was the only, he's only one of two who were jailed for phone hacking offences, um, that he doesn't have money to defend himself, that um, there's no point in pursuing him, nobody's anything to gain by it, and it looks like persecution. Um, or, I liked this bit of the letter, um, it looked like more or less kind of a malicious attempt to up the cost of illegal, you know, legal costs for uh, News Corporation or News, News International. Okay, and uh, Ollie, I tried to I tried to get in touch with you uh, just to put this to you on email, but uh, couldn't get my smartphone to work. Is there, hey. is there, is there, a, is there? I'm looking, I'm staring at your iPhone across the desk. So I'm not about to call you a BlackBerry kind of guy. But yeah. what, what's been going on at BlackBerry? Yes, I'm feeling smug that I have my iPhone this week. Well, three whole days cut off from the internet. Uh, mail and instant messaging services for BlackBerry users and it beginning to get into a fourth today on the day of recording although today there have been apparently improvements in the service it looks like it might be over now but this has just been a complete PR disaster for BlackBerry really uh, well specifically for RIM Research in Motion the company that owns BlackBerry is this, this is their PlayStation moment is it, uh... it? well it is except with PlayStation that was hacked this is of their own making um, and they haven't explained it when they did finally explain it after two days in a very convincing way they said that they 
yesterday. They said there'd been a core switch failure within RIM's infrastructure. And, you know, you can Google any nerd you like, and they were all speculating as to what core switch failure meant, but no one knew. Is it it literally a switch, do you think, that someone just sat on? (laughs) I think what happened is they tried to upgrade their software, a crucial piece of software. It went wrong, and they didn't have a backup. I think the most fascinating thing about this is we've all learned this week that uh, apparently Europe, the Middle East, Africa, India, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina are a region. <laughs> right, and, right, and we all go through Slough. Who knew? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's almost the centre of the universe. It is, or a large section of it. Uh, yeah, but I think this is just this has been really problematic, and I think it is a huge moment for them because they have major issues in the United States. You know, their their stock's been going all over the place. Um, they're losing half a million uh, users a month. Uh, Playbook has been a massive flop over there, and really, they were balancing the books by still being a success in Europe, especially amongst young people who are very fickle consumers. Um, this uh, is going to convince, I think, a lot of, of that kind of 16- to 20-year-old group who use BBM to change phones next time their contracts come up for renewal, and I'm, I'm not sure, really, that they're ever going to recover from it. Thank God there weren't any riots. See, anything can set these kids off these days. <laughs> well, there wouldn't be any riots because they wouldn't be able to use BBM. Oh. <laughs> they exactly. Coordinate them. So that's, that's a positive well, thing. they did us a service. Yeah, <laughs> funny it could have broken down in the summer. Uh, Lisa, I'm about to suggest you're a BlackBerry kind of woman, but I'm staring at your iPhone too, so uh, clearly the triumph of jobs. Itself. And, uh, no, I wondered this morning when I was reading about it, um, would any of the I mean BlackBerry is huge corporate clients and it's because its emails are encrypted so that's the big thing isn't it yes. whereas iPhones aren't so do you think any it, it, it will experience any permanent damage on the corporate front well I think if you're a business and you've lost business because of this you're not going to be very happy about it but I guess if you are a business that has 300 Blackberries that you give out to your staff you're unlikely to switch that to Android anytime soon Um, But all of this, in PR terms, cannot help. I think the way that they've dealt with it particularly has been very, very poor. I think they need to come out, as they're apparently doing in the United United Arab Emirates, and offer people at least three days' worth of money back. That's not really going to do for it. Like the woman who lost her business down in Cornwall because she she didn't email confirmation of the job. Well, this is it. They had no warning. If, if only they had a way of telling the users that the system is down, but of course they couldn't because the system was down, so how would they get that warning out? Then it would have been more acceptable. You know, if you had a text message that morning, sorry, but your email isn't working today, we're working to resolve the problem as soon as possible, love BlackBerry, people would be annoyed, but they wouldn't be as vehemently pissed off as they are now because they've just missed work completely and didn't even know that their emails weren't working until they got home and turned on the news. What it was was the, the world's cheapest piece of market research and that they now know every celebrity who's got a BlackBerry because they've been moaning yes. about it on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Piers Morgan, Alistair Campbell. Lord Sugar. Yep. Who said, uh, if it was my, this is Lord Sugar, in case you can't guess, if it was my company, it would have been fixed by now. Like the Amstrad e-phone. Those, those were always fixed very quickly. All three people that had those got them sorted as soon as possible. <laughs> 100% success. <laughs> well, moving on. The Independent has had a look of paint to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Where is it really? 25 years ago. New editor Chris Blackhurst describes it as a modern, confident, dynamic, sharper paper. Ollie, I see you've got the uh, independence stretched out uh, before you. What, what, what are your thoughts? It, it really is a red top now. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, because of that terminology, red top. And I remember when the independent had their redesign and they were very innovative. They were the first paper to go compact. They made a point of calling it compact, not tabloid, saying we are the world's first concise quality newspaper. And now they've gone and given themselves a red top. So, I mean, that's, you know, they're sending out completely the opposite signal. We should explain it's got a rest, red masthead. It has a red masthead. We haven't seen it. Which looks right. a bit like some sort of socialist worker or something. It does. It might appeal to the owner, I thought. Yes, quite possibly. I mean, actually, it is very attention-grabbing. It would stick out on a news stall. I suppose that's the real reason that they've done it. And it does actually look, you know, to the eye quite satisfying. They've also um, axed Views Paper, 
which was the bit in the middle, uh, which Johan Hari, of course, used to reside in. I wonder if that's part of the reason. Other people's newspaper. It's temporarily known. Exactly, yeah. I think it's slightly sullied by the whole business around that. Yeah, and it does, <laughs> it does look pretty, doesn't it? Um, it does look Lisa, what do you think? Uh, obviously, a little bit more style there, but is it a substanti- substantial change? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's um, the new editor, Chris Blackhurst, um, setting out to put distance between himself and Simon Kellner, the previous editor, who was the author of the Views paper. Mm. Um, and Chris Blackhurst comes from you know, a hard news background. He was a business editor. I think The Independent was losing its way, wasn't it? As uh, the views paper, it was a good gimmick when it started. Um, but got a bit annoying, didn't it? Indeed. Well, moving straight on, we'll finish with a bit of radio in this section. And as you may or may not have heard, Radio 5 Live's Drive programme has uh, moved into Salford, where the whole station will be by the end of this year. Here's Richard Bacon with the talk up. Live from Salford, here's Drive. And here's Peter Allen, three hours later, at the end of the show, with what you might call the talk down. And that's about it from uh, Asma and from me for our uh, We made day. it. Yeah. <laughs> relatively, uh, relatively unscathed. And in case you're slightly bemused by what we're describing the programme in, uh, in that fashion, it's because today, for the first day, we broadcast some Salford Keys as opposed to our normal venue in London, which, to most people listening, I expect, is a matter of not great significance. <laughs> well, exactly, Peter. Uh, Ollie, you do a lot of work on Five Live at the weekends. Uh, do, do you care more than uh, possibly Peter Allen did? Uh, I do care um, because... As a guest, I think it is going to be quite awkward. Um, we're going to be down the line on the show that we do Saturday edition because um, they don't want to pay to ferry us up to Salford once a week to do the show. Uh, and I think lacking that eye contact with the presenter will be an issue. Um, and, you know, perhaps in our case, it's not the most serious of issues. But when you're interviewing the Prime Minister or um, someone who's in a very major news story that's happening all around London, I think it is going to be a problem. Um, they're going to set up a, a video link so we can see each other. But everyone knows it's just not the same. Um, and, and I know that the money was spent already uh, to go to Salford. You know, this is money that was back from the days of Greg Dyke and Tony Blair. But it does just now feel when they're making such cuts, you know, you, you know, they're cutting people's cars, they're cutting producers, they're getting people to produce and present. To rese- I'm not talking about Five Live here, but the whole of the BBC. Um, you just think, how is it that they haven't got you know, £20 to pay a nominal guest fee, but they have £300 million to move people up to Manchester. Um, it just feels unnecessary. And the thing about Five Live as well is it does feel to me like a station that is very national. They have people calling in all the time. They have presenters from all different regions. I don't think it makes that much of a statement to put it in Manchester. I think it's going to sound basically pretty similar. They're shipping up presenters and producers from London. What kind of sense did you get from them about uh, how concerned they are with dealing people down the line? Um, Well, as far as I understand it, they're, they're trying to get more guests from up north, but at the moment they've told us that we can carry on from London, which is very flattering that they want to keep us. Um, but you, you have to say that you know, the direction of travel is obviously if they're trying to make it a station that feels more like it's from the north, then they'll want to have more organic talent from up there. So a lot of the people that they do have down here in London, I guess, won't be doing the shows there anymore. Well, it'll take time, won't it? It's organic. And you know, I can remember all this starting years and years and years ago with Liz Forgan talking about the lack of soft, brummy accents on radio and TV. You know, if you live outside London... I think everybody agrees media is so London-centric. Yeah, but there's... And you feel your voice is not, like, you know, Paul Dacre was talking about the regionals, that BBC doesn't do regional on its national networks very well. But imagine, just imagine if they'd spent that £190 million that they're spending on relocating staff up to Manchester on indies that were already based in Manchester, contributing to the local economy and knew what the local talent was. 
Imagine if they actually said that's a programming commitment and we're going to put 200 million pounds worth of programs from Manchester on the air. We're not just going to ship everyone up from London and wait 10 years for it to happen. I think that would have been better. That said, I am actually really looking forward to going up to Salford. We're going up for the radio festival. They have invited us up for the first edition of Sasa Edition that's going to be live from, from Manchester. And I think, although you can criticise Drive for sounding a bit um, excited, I guess, by their new surroundings uh, in that clip, it is quite exciting. We're going to get there and it's going to be a state-of-the-art building with an amazing studio and there will be a feeling that we're in this new media city. It's just slightly agonizing when i realize that i'm scratching a living to do this and they've spent so many millions doing it yeah i think the proof of five live will be in five ten years time when we get the next generation presenters who come in and actually live there and work there and live there and i think that will work it's just at the moment it feels a bit painful Finally this week, a bit of politics. The fantastic tale of Dr Fox has been leading news bulletins since the weekend. The drip-drip of allegations about the Defence Secretary and the nature of his relationship with his friend Adam Werity has been going on so long now he must have got a decent-sized stalactite. The married Dr Fox claims it's all just a terrible misunderstanding and that no funny business has been had. And at the time of recording, it's just received a vote of confidence from the Prime Minister, so good news there. Ollie, there's a whiff of the 80s about all this, trying to hound a minister out of office. <laughs> There is a bit, and it's gone on for so long that it's kind of having the opposite effect, which is I now feel slightly sorry for him because I feel like his public his public life is merging with his private life and it's all being dragged through the mud. And there is a political point behind that, but it's gone on for so long that it's quite painful to watch. But, I mean, the big question, I guess, is whether this is trial by media. Um, and I always find Google auto-predict very useful in these scenarios. Uh, if you type Liam Fox into Google at the moment, it prompts you with Liam Fox wife and Liam Fox rumours. I think that tells you everything you need to know. Uh, so there's no, no resign yet? Yeah, no resign yet, but no, certainly no Libya yet and no Defence Secretary yet either. So right. that's how it stands at the moment. Uh, Lisa, this is a triumph of, cri- of crisis management, clearly. Obviously, yes. He's got it correct every step of the way. You know, the fact that he's been on the front page of the mm. week, I mean, that's, uh, that's um, a testimony to his bad advice. Um, he, d- he has handled it badly um, from the off, um, uh, particularly on Saturday when... Rupert Neese from The Guardian had um, led on, you know, there were several several good stories over the weekend and he came out at tea time on Saturday and said um, this meeting that he had had in Dubai was just a chance meeting in a restaurant um, when Rupert Neese had a wadge of emails going back to April showing that they had been, um, you know, it had been carefully set up by Werity. Now, um, the truth will always out and if it doesn't, the papers will be there to, to out it and maybe that's where the, you've got why you've got the feeding frenzy is that that is why you have the feeding frenzy is because he hasn't been honest and from the start. And it's a product of the 24-hour news culture, and no, maybe not so much social media in this, in, well, he, in this event. Well, he had 14 but. meetings, then it was 18, then it was 22, plus 18. It ended up at 40 meetings, didn't it? 40 um, meetings with the rarity. But the focus should be on whether taxpayers' money was used incorrectly or whether he wasn't doing his job as a minister. It shouldn't just be on getting the truth about his private life because that's, you know, one part of the story. Um, it should always be in the context of what he's done wrong. But I, the, it, has been, um, it has been largely about the defence and about um, use of this kind of ad hoc friend. I mean, coming so swiftly after the Andy Coulson scandal, you know, the scandal that Andy Coulson wasn't, didn't have the correct security vetting, um, and then this guy didn't have security vetting at all. You think Cameron would have gone, whoa, have I not learned, has he not learned from the whole debacle over Coulson? Well, and obviously his, not. And the whole business with William Hague and his special advisor last year as well. Uh, you sort of think Liam Fox, having waited for this job for so long, having spent so long as Shadow Defence Secretary, uh, would just be a bit more careful about how he'd conducted his affairs in that way as well. And he could, he could go in, a, it could have gone in a dignified manner and he'd have another chance, you know, if Cameron lasts the course of a full term. You know, there's nothing to say that Liam Fox, Peter Mandelson came back twice. Mm. 
So it's not the end of end of the road for Liam Fox. The story was slightly uh, muddied by the burglary it happened last year, and did he or did he not reveal the fact that uh, he had a male guest in his spare room and? Uh, reached a whole different level yeah i mean that to me feels like one of the tangents that isn't relevant but i i can see if you're writing a certain kind of story the relevance of that i just wonder if that's the kind of story that should be being written well the sidebar to this story which you may have missed uh if you're not a magic listener is that the uh, of course the magic radio breakfast show is uh, hosted by dr fox uh, obvious comparison there but who'd have guessed it that the news is read by one verity gare who is not of course adam Verity, but verity <laughs> gare so um uh, tune in to uh, Magic Tomorrow for more gags along that line as, as Lisa shakes her head. <laughs> on that triumphant note, we bring things to a close. As usual, we can leave all your feedback on everything you've heard on our blog. That's guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk. My thanks to Ollie Mann and Lisa O'Carroll. Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. Thanks for listening. The Guardian.